Our Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the Psalms, Psalm 51, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading the entire psalm this evening. The word of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the first letter of John. 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, we'll be reading through verse 9 this evening. The word of our God. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to Psalm 51, beginning at verse 1. 
is this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. One of the most tragic and destructive things that we can ever do in life is to sear our own conscience. Perhaps the only thing worse would be to believe the lie that having gone on so far in our sin without repenting, that repentance is no longer possible. Your conscience is an incredibly valuable gift from God, designed to keep you out of spiritual and moral danger. Let me give you an analogy. That's the analogy of physical pain. Uh, You might imagine that it would be a wonderful thing to not feel any pain, but pain is actually a gift of God to you that is a great blessing in your life. It is pain that causes you to pull your hand off the hot stove and to put it under cold water. It is pain that causes you to get your knee checked so that you can get help. Turns out there's actually a very, very small percentage of the population who is born with a congenital inability to feel pain. And almost all of them die very early in childhood. And they die from wounds that they don't even realize they have. Because without that warning system of pain, they get injuries and infections, and nobody even realizes they need to do anything about it. Well, your conscience is like that. God has given you a conscience so that When you go off track and you do something wrong, your conscience says, no, don't do this. This is wrong. It violates God's will. It's dangerous for you and bad for other people. Now, the first time that you make a particular sin, your conscience sounds like a fire alarm going off. It really does grab your attention. But if you keep going on in that sin, the alarm gets softer and softer until you can barely hear it anymore. That's what we call searing our conscience. And to sear your conscience is to put yourself in moral and spiritual danger in the same way that not being able to feel pain puts you in physical danger. As we meditate upon this psalm, we must remember that David had been a man of God after God's own heart for many years. This is a psalm that David composes after committing adultery with Bathsheba and having Bathsheba's husband Uriah put to death in battle. Horrible sins. And David commits those sins after he had been a man after God's own heart for many, many years. It might be uh, tempting for us To want to imagine that David was an unbeliever when he committed these sins and that this this, uh, great prayer of confession, this prayer of contrition here in uh, Psalm 51 is actually his prayer of conversion. But that won't work at all. I mean, you can go back to when David was still a very young man when the Lord sends him out to kill Goliath. Right? He talks about, you know, Goliath is coming with swords and the weapons of this world but I come to you in the name of the God of Israel. David was a man after God's own heart. And that ought to be a warning to us, some of us who have been Christians for many, many years. This is not simply something that can happen to someone else out there. God has put this example in Scripture 
of one of the greatest men of God who's ever lived falling into such horrible sins by searing his conscience as a warning to all of us. But in tonight's psalm, we also see that the God who graciously gives you a conscience and warns you not to sear it is also the God who gives you the grace, having fallen into such terrible sin, to turn you back to him once again. Yes, it does contain serious warnings to us, particularly those of us who've been Christians for many years. It is, in fact, possible for us as mature believers to so sear our own consciences that we can commit the very same sorts of sins that David did. We don't know when this departure from walking as a man of God into this destructive cycle of searing his own conscience began in David's life. But what we do know is there was a time when kings go out to battle and David didn't go. He wasn't out there fighting with the armies of the Lord. Rather, he was up on the roof of his own palace enjoying life. And he gazed out and he saw this beautiful woman. And he kept looking. He didn't look away. He fixed her focus on her and he chose to lust after her. As James would later put it, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Thankfully, the Lord who loves you so much that he warns you against searing your conscience is the same Lord who loves you so much that he has provided the grace of true repentance. We're going to look at tonight's passage under five main headings. First, our basis for hope. Second, a sinner in the hands of a holy God. Third, a cry for cleansing and restoration. Fourth, determining to walk in newness of life. And fifth, a renewed concern for others, including for the Lord. And no, it's hard to keep five points in your head. It's a lot easier to keep three. So let me give those to you once again. First, our basis for hope. Second, a sinner in the hands of a holy God. Third, a cry for cleansing and restoration. Fourth, determining to walk in newness of life. And fifth, a renewed concern for others, including for the Lord. We begin with our basis for hope in verses 1 and 2. Please look there with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. How often in life have you heard, or perhaps have you even said, please forgive me, I'm so sorry, I will never do it again. Well, let me be clear, that's a perfectly good thing to say. Right? True repentance does involve feeling sorry, and it involves, by God's grace, a commitment to walk in newness of life. Right? So don't get me wrong, it is not a mistake to say, 
please forgive me. I'm so sorry. By God's grace, I will never do anything like this again. And yet those words contain a danger. Because it's possible both for the person who's sinning and for the person who's being sinned against to imagine that the basis of forgiveness is how sorry the sinner is and how committed they are to never doing it again. Do you get that danger? It locates the basis of forgiveness in me or in whoever happens to be the sinner at the moment who's making this confession. That, that can be quite dangerous on both halves of the equation. David, by contrast, is making clear in these opening verses that his hope for full forgiveness lies not in himself, but in the goodness of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. If we locate the ground for forgiveness in ourselves and our own supposed good intentions for reform, we will be sorely tempted to both minimize the offense and also to minimize the hope, because the hope depends on me. By contrast, throughout this psalm, David places all the blame upon himself and all of his hope in the Lord. He thereby makes a complete and full confession of his sins. He does not hold back. He does not pretend he had good intentions. He does not pretend that he's fallen off the cliff a bit here, but he has a wonderful track record before he did that. Rather, he makes a full, complete, and open confession of his sins before God, and it's matched up with a complete and perfect hope because his hope depends on the God who will not let him fall. David is appealing to the Lord's own self-revelation of his character. Right? David isn't dreaming these ideas up. Uh, you'll recall that when the Lord hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, Almighty God passed by Moses and declared, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, when you cast yourself upon the God who is this God, the only God who actually exists, who is a God filled with steadfast love and compassion, the God who puts away our guilt, not because we deserve it, but because he is good and he is glorifying himself through his grace, then you can have complete forgiveness and a confident hope. David appealed to and found perfect hope in the gracious character of his God. Beloved, that is where you will find it as well. Now, of course, the Lord is not only merciful and gracious, he is also holy. So David's confession also reveals what it is like to be a sinner in the hands of a perfectly holy God. Look at verses 3 through 6 with me. David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. When the Lord brings us to that place of a full confession of our sin, uh, if it's a significant sin, there's going to be a time when you're overwhelmed with the sense of the holiness of God and the horror of your rebellion against him. That's what David is experiencing at this point in his life. Yet isn't it a bit odd for him to say, against you and you only have I sinned? I mean, to point out the obvious, he had sinned against Bathsheba, and he had sinned against Uriah. You know, he had committed adultery with Uriah's wife and then had Uriah murdered. There were quite a few people, actually, that David had sinned against. So what's he getting at when he says, against you and you only have I sinned? Well, the right way to understand this psalm is to realize this is, of course, poetry, but to catch the sense of, but most of all, Right Above everyone else, Lord, I have sinned against you. Think about one of the great traditional prayers of contrition in the history of the Western Church. It includes this line. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee, and I detest all my sins because of thy just punishments. But most of all, because they offend thee, my God, who art all good and deserving of all my love. Because the Lord is your creator, he has absolute control over your life. And because he is such a good God, he has a claim upon your life for your unbroken love. That you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, and all your strength all the days of your life. When you realize that instead of doing that, and you haven't just fallen short a little bit, but you've so seared your conscience that you openly rebel against God. Remember, David's the anointed king, and he's acting like a pagan. Well, that's going to break your heart. So David is saying, most of all, all I can think of is how I've sinned against you. Tim Keller gives a helpful illustration of this point. He writes, Sin is like treason. If you try to overthrow your own country, you may harm or kill individuals in the process, but you will be tried for treason because you have betrayed an entire country that nurtured you. So it is with every sin. Every sin is cosmic treason. It is the overthrowing of the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. And that's what David has done. He has committed treason against his God, and he doesn't attempt to minimize the offense in order to lessen the punishment. Rather, David declares, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. But as David is coming into the court of Almighty God and pleading guilty of cosmic treason. I particularly love the rendering of this line in Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 51c, which we're going to sing after the sermon this evening. I have sinned against thy grace 
and provoke thee to thy face. I confess thy judgment just, speechless, I thy mercy trust. David is saying, in myself all I am is guilty. But I do not come to you in myself, I come to you in the mediator whom you will send. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your tender mercy. And please notice that David does not appeal to the false idea that this was just a one-time thing, an odd lapse against an otherwise impressive moral record. You know, we're tempted to do that um, because of our own experience in this world with human beings. If you have an employee who works for you for 20 years and is a really good employee, and then they really mess up, you're going to be inclined to give them another break because of their 20 years of loyal and faithful service. We know that's how we act with each other as human beings, and so we're tempted to come to God like that and say, well, Lord, you know, I really messed up here, but think of all the ways I've served you over the last 10, 15, 20 years of my life. But that's a lie. And David doesn't bring that lie to the throne of Almighty God. David comes completely clean. Instead of pretending that he has decades of upright behavior, David acknowledges that from the very moment he was conceived in his mother's womb, he had participated in a sinful nature and has therefore a long and ruinous record of actual sins. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. That's not his mother's sinning. His mother didn't sin by conceiving him. I was brought forth in iniquity, David is saying, from the very moment I was conceived, I participated in a sinful nature, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Given that the Lord desires not only outward conformity to his law, but purity within our hearts, what hope does David have? A little bit more pressing, what hope do we have? Here's the central truth that we learn from this psalm. David does not cry out for understanding and tolerance. Let me say that again. David does not cry out for understanding and tolerance. David cries out for cleansing and restoration. We need to do that as well. David does not cry out for understanding and tolerance. He cries out for cleansing and restoration. Look at verses 7 through 12 with me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. But the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing heart. What does it mean for the Lord to blot out our iniquities? The image is that of ripe, uh, wiping away writing that would be on a page. You know, in the ancient world, paper, they didn't actually have paper like we do today, but the things they wrote on were expensive. And so they would be reused, and you would write on them. If you wanted to reuse it, you would wipe it clean. That's the language here. Uh, we might think of it in the modern world of a judge 
not only saying you've paid your penalty, but expunging the record. That's what David is saying. Lord, I want you to expunge the record of my sins so that there is no more record to stand against me. As I love to remind you, on the cross, God treated Jesus as though he had lived your life so that for all eternity he could treat you as though you had lived his. And that's what David is pleading and basing his hope on. In Christ, the Lord does not treat you as though you are a felon who still needs to work off part of your sentence. Well, I think you realize that. But I hope you all also realize that in Christ, the Lord doesn't treat you as though you are a convicted felon who has paid the full punishment that your crime deserved. See, in Christ, the Lord treats you as though you had been conceived apart from sin and as though you had lived a perfectly righteous life that has been pleasing to him in every possible way from beginning to end. That is, in Christ, the Lord treats you as though you had lived like Jesus. We, of course, know that this is not how we are living in ourselves. And we become particularly aware of this when the Holy Spirit convicts us deeply of a particular sin or set of sins. So David cries, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Well, why hyssop? You know it's back there in Leviticus and Numbers and stuff, but why hyssop? Well, as Robert Alter has pointed out, hyssop was used in ritual purification. Uh, the priest dipped the hyssop branch into the blood, and then he would sprinkle it over the objects, over the people, to expunge the impurity. Intriguingly, in numbers, hyssop is used not with blood, but with water, where the water was sprinkled, uh, actually as a foretaste, of, as it were, of baptism, of God's desire and God's act of cleansing his people from uncleanliness. By the way, one of the problems with baptism by immersion, it's not that it's invalid, but one of the problems with it is, is if you cut off all the sprinkling from the Old Testament that gets done, uh, where God promises that in the New Covenant he will sprinkle us with clean water and we'll be clean, or these type of images from Numbers, is we end up imagining that it's an entirely new thing in the New Covenant. And forget that this is the way God has worked with his people from the very beginning. Not by our works, but by his cleansing grace do we stand before him. Well, if we take these two uses together, we see that David is appealing to the Old Testament sacramental system as it points forward to Jesus Christ. See, David is not engaging in creative writing going, boy, wouldn't it be cool if I took a hyssop branch and I got sprinkled with it? He's appealing to how God has revealed himself in his character and he's appealing to the means of grace that God himself has established for his people. Beloved, you ought to do that too. Of course, you don't have to appeal to hyssop. But you very well can appeal to the baptism that you were sealed in, with in, in either your infancy or your adulthood and appeal to God's ongoing work in the Lord's Supper. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. The Lord Jesus Christ intends that those things would strengthen your assurance of his never-failing love. 
But see, David's desire is not merely that he'd be forgiven, as great as that is. He is approaching the Lord on the basis of the Lord's own character and the Lord's appointed means of grace, precisely so that he will come to enjoy walking with the Lord again in newness of life. As he pleads in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The word for create here is actually the very same word that we find in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's interesting about this verb is the only subject of this verb in the entire Bible is God. But you might see in your English translation, uh, human beings creating things. It doesn't use this verb. And that's because this verb is very special. As James Mays points out, it almost certainly means in itself to create out of nothing. That was a bit of irony in David using that verb about his own heart, because David, after all, had been a believer for many years. That is, he had been born again by the Spirit of God. But in recognizing how deep his sin has been, he's saying, Lord, I want you to start over with me, to do what I can't do. I can't just clean it up a bit. I need you, O Lord, to create in me a clean heart from scratch as it were, so that I will follow you in a way that will glorify you and I will enjoy you as my Lord and Savior forever. The corollary to this is that David repeatedly prays for his prior joyous relationship with the Lord to be restored. He wants to walk with the Lord to glorify God, but he also does want to enjoy God forever. So in verse 8 he prays, Let me hear joy and gladness, but the bones you have broken rejoice. While in verse 12 he returns to this desire, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. We ought to pause and meditate upon this truth. In our current cultural moment, it seems that we have lost much of the meaning of forgiveness and reconciliation so that it efforts at things like the so-called uh, racial reconciliation movement, and I do have to say so-called here, they actually never seem to lead to reconciliation. Rather, one side apologizes, and after they apologize, instead of that leaving, leading to forgiveness and reconciliation, it leads to demands that they grovel more but that they make greater amends and so on. And because that's so much a part of our contemporary culture, we can wrongly let that seep over to what happens to us with God. But beloved, God is not asking you to grovel more. When you cry out to the Lord for forgiveness, you are completely and perfectly reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord doesn't look at you and say, I'm putting you on probation. He looks at you and says, my beloved daughter, my beloved son, come into my arms. The Lord, being rich in mercy, causes the bones which he himself has broken to rejoice. The end of genuine confession is a restored relationship with the living God, and in his presence there is fullness of joy at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. What does this joy lead to? 
Joy in God's presence leads to gratitude and a fresh determination to walk in newness of life. Look at verses 13 through 17 with me. David prays, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. What is the broken and contrite heart that the Lord will not despise? Such a heart is one that despairs of self-righteousness and which looks to the Lord as the only basis for our relationship with him. But where does that heart come from? I want to suggest that it doesn't come simply from recognizing our own sin. That, that is, the commandments of how we're supposed to live and exposing how we've fallen short are not enough to give us this contrite heart. Rather, it comes from apprehending the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. It is his grace that turns us to having a tender heart that says, Lord, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And I have no hope in heaven, but in you. As John Newton teaches us, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. It is of grace from beginning to end because it is of Christ from beginning to end. Now this truth casts a great deal of light on verse 13, which can be taken in more than one way. Look there again with me. Verse 13. David declares, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Now, you can think of the ways of the Lord in terms of us walking in uprightness. And David is saying, Lord, you know, when you turn me back to you, I'm going to live such an outstanding Christian life that people will be able to look at me and know what your ways are like, and I will teach them to imitate me and walk in your ways. But, beloved, that is not what David is saying. See, in the psalm, David is saying your ways are the ways of astonishing grace toward a sinner who is as bad as I am. This is really practical for us. This is not simply some hypothetical thing about a dead saint from 3,000 years ago. This is immensely practical for us. David is not saying, Lord, please lead me to walk with perfect uprightness so others can see how I walk in the way of the Lord and how they can imitate me by also walking in all your ways. David is telling the Lord that when you shower great mercy upon me, I will tell other sinners that they too should turn to you. For you are the great and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Those are the ways of the Lord that I will declare. And other sinners who see how you have forgiven me this almost unimaginably bad sin. Can forgive them too. 
Isn't that precisely what the Apostle Paul will write almost a thousand years later? Paul writes this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I'm going to tell you how practical this is. Beloved, there are many, many Christians who imagine that they cannot be used to witness for God because they're not good enough. Beloved, your shortcomings do not hinder you witnessing to God at all. Yes, they hinder you witnessing to yourself. Your shortcomings keep you from being able to go tell other people, be good like me. But they are actually the qualification for you to be able to say, God saved a wretch like me. If his grace is great enough for me, it is great enough for you as well. That's what David is saying here. Lord, when you show mercy on me, this great and horrible sinner, other sinners will look upon me and say, surely he can save me too. Beloved, Luther was right. Evangelism is nothing more than one beggar telling other beggars where he has found food. And every one of us can do that. Finally, in verses 18 and 19, we see that all true repentance, let me underline that, all true repentance, not some, not a great deal, but all, all true repentance leads to concern for other people, including for the Lord. Please look there with me, verses 18 and 19. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. You notice the change of focus here? One very able Jewish scholar has suggested that this is such a big turn from that personal crying out to the Lord for forgiveness and renewal and the restoration of the joy of his own salvation to talking about Zion and Jerusalem, he says it must have been added by a later editor who many, many years later tried to take this psalm of David and make it apply more broadly to other people. And as much respect as I have for Rabbi Segal, that's just wrong. I want to assert that this shift is the ordinary and logical outcome of any true repentance. Sin, after all, is selfish. Repentance leads to an abandonment of self, to actually beginning to love the Lord your God, to love your neighbor as yourself. Sin is selfish. It's turned in upon ourselves. Genuine repentance leads to being reoriented toward the two great commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to loving our neighbors as ourselves. This is what David is doing at the end of this psalm. He is praying that the Lord would be glorified through blessing his people. We should pray like that as well. So Psalm 51 moves from David crying out for mercy 
to the Lord doing good for and delighting in his people. And it's not surprising, therefore, that this psalm, which is so moving, is one that has deeply touched the people of God throughout the ages. Yet the Holy Spirit has not given us this psalm so that we would merely admire it. The Lord has inspired this psalm to give us words by which we can turn to the Lord from our own sin, confident that in turning, we will be welcomed by the God of amazing grace. Therefore, beloved, let us fully confess our sins as an act of praise to our Savior, our Savior, who is greater than all our sin. Amen.